Good morning. It is a real privilege to be here together with you today, worshiping our Lord Jesus. On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the famous Emancipation Proclamation, which immediately freed about three million slaves in Confederate territories. However, it took nearly two and a half years for some of those slaves to experience freedom. Union forces had to occupy Confederate territory in order to enforce the proclamation. The last such place to be emancipated was the city of Galveston, Texas, whose people had never even heard of the president's proclamation until Union soldiers arrived on June 19th, 1865, an event now commemorated by the federal holiday, Juneteenth. Isn't it crazy that a person can be legally free without even knowing about or experiencing their freedom? If others around them don't yet recognize their freedom, they need someone to arrive with the good news about their freedom in order for it to go from dream to reality. Just as with the American Confederate slaves, so also is it with those who are enslaved to sin and misery. Our passage this morning from the prophet Nahum, it's on page 734, if you have one of the church Bibles. And it will show us that there is no freedom until the news of it arrives. That's the main idea this morning. There is no freedom until the news of it arrives. And you can see on your outline that in order to free those who have been freed, worthless news must leave, freedom must be recognized for what it is, and then good news must come. That's where we're heading this morning. Let me pray once more for our time in God's Word. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would show us here in the pages of your Word the freedom that you have procured for your people, your people Judah in the time of Nahum, and your people in the church in our day. And grant us good news that we might see and understand and recognize this freedom for what it is. And inspire us, motivate us to take this news to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first point is that worthless news must leave. We looked at the first eight verses of this book last week, and verse eight promised to God's people that God would make a complete end of his adversaries. The people of Nineveh, the capital city of the evil and oppressive empire of Assyria, God will make an end of them. And so picking up from there, God continues speaking to his people of Judah, here's verses 9 through 11. What do you plot against the Lord 
He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. We see in this opening stanza that worthless news must leave. God's people must stop listening to false reports. God turns to his people here in these verses, those who have taken refuge in him, and he asks them in verse 9, why do you plot against the Lord? That is against Yahweh, your God. Now, Assyria has besieged the city of Jerusalem on a few occasions before this. And God has defended his people and turned Assyria away every time because they trusted in him. But they might waver in that trust. We know that the people of Judah sometimes trusted God and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they stood secure and other times they thought they knew better than God. This time when Nahum writes is now a time when they are tempted to listen to those people who are telling them to take matters into their own hands. There are leaders among the people who, in the name of saving the kingdom, are plotting against Yahweh. So God reminds his people in verse 9 that he will make a complete end of the adversary. All they have to do is trust him. This trouble that they face from Assyria will not last forever. And once God deals with it for good, it will never rise up again. It will not come back a second time. Verse 10 then offers a few metaphors to give the people some perspective on their situation. Because I think when you're under fire, you tend, you and I tend to grasp at all the wrong metaphors. Right? When you go through suffering, aren't you inclined to think, I am like a grasshopper to this lion? Or I am like a rabbit to the mighty hunter? And so God gives them a new perspective. He gives them a new set of metaphors. He says in verse 10 that Assyria is like entangled thorns. In other words, they are pokey, they are annoying, but in the end, not much more than something to be ripped off and discarded. He says Assyria is like drunkards as they drink. In other words, they are confident and boastful, but when he finally stands up, he can't even throw a straight punch. What's there to be afraid of that? He says at the end of verse 10, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. So they're like dried stubble, consumed in a fire. You know, he, he doesn't even give them the dignity of being fuel for the fire. They're, they're just the stuff that flashes and disappears right away to help the real fire get going. You know, they're going to very soon be destroyed and vaporized. Have you ever noticed how much your encouragement level in hard times 
is determined by your perspective on the situation. It's determined by your use of metaphors. Two people can both get cancer. One of them perceives a high mountain that can't be scaled. And another perceives entangled thorns. Two people can both lose their jobs. One of them perceives the end of all happiness. And another perceives freedom and a new beginning. When you suffer, watch your metaphors. The way you perceive of your situation betrays where your hope is. And the way you perceive your situation is very closely related to whose voice you listen to. Whose interpretation of your situation carries the most weight for you. You see, the reason why the people of Judah are wrestling through their perspective on Assyrian oppression is because they've been listening to the wrong influencers. In verse 11, he says, From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. You see, there are people who have been proclaiming bad news for Judah. People who have seen the looming Assyrian threat and they have counseled the people of Judah to panic. People who seem really smart and influential, but their counsel, their view of the world is worthless. And such people must leave. Worthless news must leave. It's similar today. When life gets hard, there are millions of flashy gurus who want to come along and whisper in your ear. People who will come alongside you telling you that God must not be real. Or he must not care about you. So you need to look out for yourself and do what's in your interest here. And maybe it doesn't sound polite, but the Bible is clear that such counsel is worthless. It's worthless and it must leave. Ironically, such counselors promise you freedom, but there is no freedom there. It must be cleaned out in order for a more helpful perspective to take root. Such worthless counsel can take many forms today. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. You can't trust your leaders. These are among the most frequent. But such worthless counsel is enslaving people by the millions. There is no freedom there since you will always be afraid that you may have missed out on some part of yourself. And it's, it's no coincidence that people with this philosophy end up divorcing their spouses who no longer fulfill them. They grow estranged from their children who dare to branch out into life away from their parents. And such folks constantly struggle in careers where they feel they are not respected enough or promoted quickly enough. Please, especially pay no mind to the widespread but worthless counsel to reject or ignore the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Pay no mind to the severe pressure to leave him out of the academy or out of the public sphere. Pay no attention to the silly and worthless idea that all religions are worshiping the same God anyway. Such counsel is worthless and will result in your destruction. But the Lord has something better in store for his people, something that leads to their rescue from affliction, something that results in the freedom to be who he made them to be. And such freedom must be recognized for what it is. That's our second point. Freedom must be recognized. Continuing in verses 12 through 14. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. This second stanza highlights the fact that freedom must be recognized. Verse 13 says it most directly, that the yoke of Assyria will be broken off the back of Judah. Now, a yoke is a wooden bar that a farmer lays across a group of oxen in order to strap them together so they can work as a team. That yoke is a metaphor here for the slavery of God's people facing attack from the evil empire of Assyria. God will break that yoke, enabling his people to finally be free of danger, free of oppression, free from assault. But notice what verse 12 says it takes to get to that place of freedom. God's people must face an enemy at full strength, an enemy who is many, but no worries, they will be cut down and pass away. But then here's the kicker. Continuing on in verse 12, God says... That even though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. You see, friends, you cannot be free of your suffering or your affliction until you recognize that God is in full control of all your suffering and affliction. Even though the army camped outside Jerusalem belongs to Assyria, they were there only because God sent them there. And until you can see this when you face adversity, until you can see it as God's hand, you will not recognize your freedom and you'll be forever enslaved to hopelessness. We saw this last week, earlier in this chapter of Nahum, that God's power and God's goodness are not in tension with each other because neither one of those traits can really function without the other in combination. 
So when God employs his power in a way that leads to your affliction and suffering, it's crucial that we take refuge in him. The reason is because he got you into it. So only he can get you out of it. He brought the affliction for your good in order to shape you for his glory. Like a hammer striking at hot iron in order to fashion it into a stronger tool. Or like a muscle that can only grow stronger after it is put under great duress. So God shapes and molds his people through the fires of affliction. And even though God might use evil empires and oppressors to mature his people, the time will always come when such evil must still come to an end. You see, God is more powerful than evil empires. He uses them for his purposes, but then when he is done, he discards them. And they must come to an end. So in verse 14, God turns from speaking to Judah and he addresses Assyria promising to end them. Both the nation itself and its pathetic little gods that will be cut off. Because Nineveh is morally bankrupt and vile, well, God is generous enough to start digging some graves for them. This often is really difficult for people to grasp. And I I confess it's not easy. How can God control evil people in one moment and then destroy them in the next? Is God in charge or is he not? Am I suffering right now because of evil or because of God? And if the answer to that question is both, then does that make God evil? These are important questions that worth grappling with, and the answer to them can get quite complex. But Nahum cuts through all the complexity for the time being. There's just one thing he wants us to know here, which is that if your God is not bigger and stronger than what afflicts you, then your God, like the house of the gods of Assyria, will not last. Nor will you last. Your mental breakdown is on its way. We need to look illness, cancer, job loss, and bereavement square in the eye and be able to say, God did that. This is not outside his control. He's not standing idly by just wishing he could do something about it. No, this is from God and it is for my good. And that sort of shift in perspectives is what it means to be free. Free from the oppression of doubt and anxiety, free from making our suffering even worse through the use of untruthful metaphors. Much later, one of the most prolific followers of Jesus would write that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Because for those who love God All things work together for good. That's a very famous promise 
from Romans 8.28. And it does not mean that your life is good. It is not a promise that your life will be filled with happy sunshine because you follow Jesus. No, Romans 8.28 is actually saying the opposite. That verse means that your life for following Christ will be filled with punishing trouble. But that trouble is what God is using to shape you to become more like Jesus so that you can share in his glory at the end. Now, all that is well and good. But isn't it a little bit like those slaves in Galveston, Texas? Those who had been declared free in 1863, but were still living under Confederate rule for two and a half more years. God declares in Nahum 1.13 that he will free his people. But living under such a promise is not pleasant. Precisely because the promise hasn't yet been fulfilled. They've still got the yoke of Assyria for now. Freedom is promised, but it's not here yet. And adopting a new perspective that God is behind this, God is in control, that doesn't make all the pain go away. They need something more, something even more than a promise for the future, something more than a far-off legal statute. What they need is some good news. And they need someone to come and enforce the promise of God. And so that takes us to point number three. Good news must come. Verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Here we have in contrast to the worthless news that must leave, we see here that good news must come. The Lord was talking to Nineveh in verse 14, but now he turns back in 15 to his people Judah. And he directs his attentions to the the mountains surrounding the city. Not to see the invaders coming back, but to see the feet of those messengers who bring good news. It's like those slaves in Texas witnessing the Union soldiers approaching the city to liberate them once and for all. And the good news being brought to Jerusalem is, in particular, news of peace. There in verse 15, this is the person who publishes peace. And the the people of God can return to their worship of God through their feasts and their vows and their sacrifices because the one who used to lead them away from the Lord has been cast out, the worthless news The worthless counselor has left. It will never return to them again. And so while the worship of Assyria was cut off in verse 14, the worship of Judah will carry on in verse 15. 
as this good news of peace comes to Judah, what does that message actually consist of? What does it sound like? What's the script? We have to keep reading into chapter 2 to find out. This is one of those places in the Bible where the chapter divisions, which were added long after the books were written, is not the most helpful. In verse 1 of chapter 2, the word of peace actually sounds a lot like a word of war. The mighty superpower of Assyria will finally meet its match. And the reason why the people of Jerusalem won't have to worry about Assyria any longer is because Assyria is soon going to have bigger problems. Another nation will rise up to conquer Assyria. He says, the scatterer has come up against you. And the Lord then magnanimously suggests a potential strategy for Nineveh. Man the ramparts, watch the road, and so on. The Lord is basically saying they'd better keep a good watch because things are about to take a pretty dark turn for the nation that has been violent and oppressive to nations all around the world. Their violence is about to fall on their own heads. And in the process, God knows what he's doing. In verse 2, the imminent attack on Assyria has a purpose, which is to restore the people of Israel to their former glory. They have been plundered for far too long. Their peace and their glory is about to be returned to them. Under King Hezekiah's reign over Judah, Assyria had come up to lay siege on a few occasions. And Hezekiah had to pay tribute to them, which consisted of silver and gold that he stripped from the temple in Jerusalem. But Nahum says, no more. You are free. You will not be plundered anymore. The province of Babylon would soon rebel against Assyrian authority. And Babylon would grow strong enough over time to challenge Assyria altogether. They would take out the city of Nineveh, wipe it out to the ground, and force the Assyrian king to flee. And that final Assyrian king, Ashur-Ubalit II, he would muster his army one last time and try to retake the city, but he failed And he had to flee. And there are no existing records of what happened to him or where he spent the rest of his days after the fall of the empire. What all that meant for Judah was that they would be free of Assyria. They would have peace once again. They'd be free to worship their God without fear of attack. They'd be free to carry on their business and live their lives. The point of all this is that the people of God could not experience their freedom until the feet of those messengers could be seen on the mountainside. There could be no freedom until the news of it arrives. This is no small point. Maybe for some of you, those words in verse 15 sound a little familiar. Trying to place that? Oh, I'm more familiar with Nahum than I thought. Well... Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. What Nahum writes here is he's actually quoting the book of Isaiah, which was written before Nahum. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
Isaiah wrote those words long before Nahum wrote his book. But when Isaiah wrote it, he wasn't talking about the end of Assyria like Nahum is. Isaiah, though it was written earlier, was looking farther ahead and he was talking about the end of Babylon, the empire that would take over from Assyria. But there's also a sense in which Isaiah was looking even beyond the fall of Babylon because this prophecy in chapter 52 of Isaiah flows right into what is perhaps his most famous work that we call Isaiah chapter 53. The prophecy of a servant of God who would suffer on behalf of the entire nation. God would make him suffer so that the nation could experience full freedom. Not just from Assyria or even Babylon, but freedom from sin and from death. The New Testament makes frequent use of those prophecies to explain what Jesus Christ was up to when he came to earth, when he served God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, when he died a shameful death, and when he rose again from the grave three days later. Freedom from sin and death are possible only because Jesus died in our place and gave to his people new life in the world he was building. And that freedom is amazing and wonderful. You and I can actually be free from the sin which so easily entangles us like thorns. We can be free from the foolish choices we make that hurt ourselves and each other. We can be washed clean of our rebellion against God so that we can be restored in his proper worship. You see, freedom is available, but can you recognize it for what it is? Most people are still like slaves living in Confederate-controlled lands. There is no freedom until the news of it arrives. That's why Jesus said that this message of freedom must go out to all nations. You see, Jesus stood in the very city that Nahum tried to protect, the city of Jerusalem. But Jesus turned things around. Instead of perceiving of themselves as the city under siege that needs messengers of good news to come, Jesus gave them a new metaphor. Jesus' followers must see themselves as the messengers. In Luke 24, Jesus said that it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. One of Jesus' followers was a man named Paul. And he picked up on this idea pretty clearly. He knew these lines from Nahum, which Nahum had quoted from Isaiah, and Paul used them to make the same point Jesus did. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and here's Nahum 1.15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
You see, there was no freedom for you or me until the news of it arrived. And the same thing is true for the rest of the enslaved people all around us. There is no freedom for them until news of it arrives. Now, not everyone will receive that news with equal gladness. In fact, many people will hear the news itself as a threat. Some people accuse the Christian religion of being a straitjacket because it means they have to stop doing the evil things that they are doing. But this is the only way to true freedom. Because as we see with Assyria in the book of Nahum, God's patience will not last forever and his anger against sin will break out and destroy his enemies. But in the meantime, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to proclaim peace. Make sure you take refuge in him. As you do so, you can know that your sins are forgiven and you'll remember that others must hear this news as well. There's no freedom until the news of it arrives. Perhaps your feet will be a beautiful and welcome sight to someone this week. As you announce to them this message of freedom from self-focus, from sin and from death, because there are people out there whom God has already freed, they just don't know it yet. They need you to bring the good news of peace that will shift their entire perspective on what they are going through. Worthless news must go. Freedom must be recognized for what it is. And good news must come. That's all because there's no freedom until the news of it arrives. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, please set your people free. Help us, Lord, to watch our metaphors and to shift our perspective as we face suffering, that we might see your hand in it, and so love and worship you more. And Lord, please make our feet beautiful to those around us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.